Welcome to the Viewpoint Podcast with your host, Henry Grosek. Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time, John Fain, a person who's well known to people all across Australia. John's a lawyer, award-winning broadcaster. He hosted the agenda-setting morning broadcast for ABC Radio. He's done so many other things. He currently writes for the Sunday Age. He's published uh, a best-selling travel book. Uh, he's now published, written, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale. It's published by Hardy Grant Books. It's out now and uh, I've had a read of it and, and, and the three words I use to describe that book, and we'll talk to John in a moment about it, one is it's extremely well written. Um, that's as a teacher and principal important to me. It's an extremely well written book. It's very engrossing and thought provoking and, and uh, thirdly, uh, at the end of the day, it's a very educational book, so I, I couldn't give it higher praise. In saying that, welcome to Viewpoints, John Fain. You're very generous and thank you. Actually, John, I'm not being generous. I'm being honest. <laughs> well, your honesty is generous too then. Thank you, John. Now, John, um, in I, I want to read something out because it really got me, before I even started the book, I'll quote you. I only met Thelma Hawkes after she died. Her brother Paul, the mighty Apollo, introduced us to tell you their story. I have to tell you some of mine. He was my client, my favourite client when I was a baby lawyer. Apollo's epic tale and Thelma's ghostly presence have been constants in my life now for 40 years. Telling their story has become an obsession. Now, John, obsession can be a, a dangerous space in which to find oneself. Uh, uh, where has writing this book taken you in dealing with, uh, with obsession? I plead guilty to <laughs> occasional obsessions. I've for a long time had obsessions about old French cars, for instance. They've been, I've played with old Citroens for obscure reasons since I got my license. And I kind of have stopped struggling to avoid that. That's just how it is. This story has stuck with me since I was a baby lawyer. Um, so it starts in 1982. And uh, Thelma Hawkes, who is the Thelma in the title, died very suddenly and unexpectedly in the bathroom of the pub she owned and ran in very remote outback Northern Territory area called Victoria River Downs. So west of Catherine, if you can imagine that, heading towards Western Australia. And Thelma had been there for years and years and years, and she ran a pub there. When she died, she left a very complex estate and the ultimate beneficiaries, in legal terms, what are called the residual beneficiaries, the people who get whatever's left over, were her nephews. They lived in Melbourne. They were underage. They were teenagers. And their father, therefore, looked after them, and he became my client. And he was Paul Alexander McPherson Anderson, better known, particularly from showbiz years and the like, as the mighty Apollo, the world's strongest man. And he was famous, Henry, for doing things like pulling a tram down the street with a toggle in his teeth. And also, he survived having an elephant stand on him, along with <laughs> decades of circus and tent shows, travelling tent shows. He was a pioneer on the early days of Australian television with Graham Kennedy and Bert Newton performing in the studio for those early TV shows, variety shows. He was a generous contributor to charities and fundraisers for worthy causes, and he was a quite a presence. He also was the, the first person to bring martial arts in, 
um, Asian-style judo, karate and the like martial arts to Australia and ran a very big gym in the city for a long time. And he became my client. Mm, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Now, I was reading very recently, John, in fact, only the other day, um, a review of a uh, a film soon to be released, Elvis, uh, Baz Luhrmann, and I was reading what Baz said about it. And he said, and I, and I couldn't be help, couldn't help but be reminded of what he said in in looking at your book in in totality. And Baz Luhrmann's comments, uh, uh, re his film was, he said, the great storytellers like Shakespeare. You're in elite ground here now, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> John. Settle, settle down, Harry. Settle I am. Down, yeah. <laughs> they really didn't do biographies, um, those people. They used life uh, of a person as a canvas to explore larger ideas and issues. And am I wrong to suggest that, uh, to a large degree, that has been the focus uh, of Thelma and Apollo in your writing the book? Well, I suppose, yes, that's right, although I've never had it put to me in those terms, and that's quite uh, quite startling and inappropriate to be put in the company of Baz Luhrmann, let alone <laughs> Shakespeare. But uh, as I say at the start, in order to tell their story, I have to tell you some of mine, and I was reluctant to do so. I've always, despite having worked in the public eye for what, 30 or so years, I've always been a very private person and together with Jan, my wife, and our kids, we've sort of, we've never sought the spotlight and, you know, we weren't kind of red carpet people and we weren't desperately trying to be influencers or get into the social pages of the papers. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah, I, I used to be notorious when I was at the ABC. If we were invited to go and see a, a show, I'd often, if Jan wanted to go, I'd say, yeah, we'll go, but not on opening night, um, which always kind of, um, annoyed the publicists because opening night is where they try and get you to kind of you know infuse publicly about what they've done and I guess I I always held back from doing that and I didn't want to become public property but in telling this story I've given away some of that privacy I've surrendered some of it and um, for reasons that are explained in the book it's not mm. gratuitous and it's not self interested and it's not attention seeking it's in order to tell some stories and uh, as you'll know from reading the book and when people, if they do go and get the book, then they'll find there's some funny stories, some uh, amusing and entertaining episodes, but there's also some some heavy lifting in here. And I'm I'm not shy of that. I, if anything, had a reputation in my years at the ABC as being a, a fearless broadcaster and sometimes to, to the regret of the people I was interviewing. And that was me doing my job. That's what the ABC and the community required of me. And in researching Apollo, Thelma and the Northern Territory and the other things that emerge in this book, I found and learned things that I couldn't unsee and I wasn't prepared to self-censor or leave things out of a story just because they were a bit uncomfortable and we can go into that or we can leave it as a mystery. It's entirely up to you. No, no, look, that was something I've put down here. Um, it takes a lot of courage for people, John, to give of themselves. Uh, Self-protection is, is a huge thing and you've been, yeah. a very, you've been a very public figure for a long time and uh, you're right. A couple of things. I did laugh and I thought you wrote that very well. Um, the smug city lawyer comment when you sat in your office. <laughs> well, there's, there's a bit of that. I mean, I've never taken myself entirely seriously, sometimes perhaps to my disadvantage, but uh, at the same time, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a bit bemused by my own trajectory in life. Um, you know, just when you introduced me as, you know, having all these achievements, I kind of thought, 
Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I suppose, but I, I, I don't think about those things. I just get up and do what's in front of me. And if others want to make a, a kind of a meal out of it, then that's up to them. I'm um, Sometimes to my disadvantage, I might say, I'm just interested in doing things that are useful. Um, I want to keep making a living, but it's, it's you know, I, I would have made five times more each year if I worked in commercial radio, but I never did. Never wanted to. Never sought it. Never chased it. Um, was occasionally approached and went, "No, that's not my that's not my thing, not my tribe." Um, if I'd stayed as a lawyer, I probably would have made a stack of money, much more than I ever made, even though I was well paid by ABC standards. By you know, sort of, if I'd been a QC or a senior partner in a law firm, I would have made buckets of money. But that didn't appeal to me either. So, you know, sometimes it's to your disadvantage. But I chased things that I thought were interesting and useful instead, and that's. I guess, how it ended up. Mm. No, look, John, and uh, you've got a lot of friends out there and a lot of people who can relate, and I think that'll be one of the one of many strengths of your book. Uh, just on a personal level, I was a, a migrant kid who came from Europe in the 50s with mum and dad who didn't speak English, and uh, the same thing. It doesn't matter what I've achieved. Some people think I've done some pretty good things in life. I've always had this, oh, are you sure? Um, there's a little bit of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, you know, or poppy syndrome or whatever? Well, no, no. I'll express it slightly differently if I can. Um, I learned very early on in my work in the media that there was a real trap because the media is incredibly sort of self-important and uh, if you start to believe your own bullshit, if you can (laughs) excuse that on your podcast, uh, if, if you believe your own bullshit, you're in all sorts of trouble and I was always incredibly aware of that trap and determined not to fall into it. So, you know, I mean, there's things as a school principal and teacher, I mean, you know, there are things we weren't taught at school and things about ourselves, about Australia, about our uh, early years. And as I learned about them and as I, and they relate directly to the story of Apollo and Thelma and Mm. what was going on up where she lived in the Northern Territory, I kind of went, well, I'm not going to pretend I don't know these things and just leave them out because it's all a bit embarrassing or inconvenient or just too hard. And I mean, you know, no high school history teacher was going to stand in front of my Melbourne High Year 10 history class and talk about early colonial settlers, dingo trappers, buffalo hunters and minerals explorers going out and raping Aboriginal women. Mm which then would trigger massacres in reprisal. Um, I mean, you know, that that just got left out. And as I learned more and read more and discovered that the the core documents, whether in court transcripts or the the famous Gurindji walk-off in Wave Hill, that these were seminal moments in Australian history but had not been fully described or fully explained. We'd left things out because they were just a bit awkward. I thought, well, you know what? It's about time, and if we're going to believe in reconciliation and treaty and truth-telling, then let's just start with that. Let's do it. Mm. And I do. do. And in your gratitude and acknowledgements, I was drawn to your comments. Because the same happened to me, John. When we were taught Australian history at high school, I'm quoting you now, we were provided with a sanitised, airbrushed version of our origin story, and it's now well past the time to stop pretending. It's been well past the time for a long time. Are you hopeful in looking forward on that uh, particular issue? Yes, I am. I've um, I've been doing quite a bit of conference work and public speaking and the like, which I usually enjoy because I learn so much from the people I'm working with. And when there's a, a welcome to country and an acknowledgement, and then I respond, I always say, 
I say this, Henry. Mm-hmm. I say I also I express my gratitude to the you know the First Nations people and the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. And I then add, I express my personal impatience for a treaty or treaties in order to try to address some of the mistakes we've made in our past. Now I've said that at a, you know a, a superannuation conference, a car industry conference, at teachers conferences, at um, local government conferences. I said it the other night at a book event in Camberwell, and it it universally is greeted with spontaneous applause, interrupting me. Mm-hmm. Now that tells me something. I mean, it just tells us there's an enormous impatience in our community for these issues to be addressed somehow. I think it's most Australians are embarrassed by this and want it fixed. And this book, I mean, it's not what I started out to write. It evolved as I was doing the research. But having, as I said, having heard it, learned it, read it, I couldn't unsee it. So I thought, well, I have to make, and it is, it's relevant, it's in context and it's there. No, absolutely. gets back to my point at the beginning. I wasn't being flattering or gratuitous. Uh, The book is about bigger picture ideas as well as a wonderful story. Getting back to the wonderful story, and here's another issue, John, in uh, in Chapter 9, Rhonda. Um, I'll just quote this little bit. Having parted ways with Nolan, Nolan Apollo subscribed to the common view of the time. Very stereotypical. That women inhabit a man's career, cut out the dames and go for the fame. When I was young, I chased beautiful women, but the thrill of conquering is more enduring than the thrill of love. Uh, It's almost like the process versus the outcome and a very stereotypical view. You included that, obviously, because you could have put a lot of things in for purposes. Yeah, I mean it's it's true. Um, Apollo was a uh, an enigmatic figure and a charismatic figure, and was capable of extraordinary feats of strength, like pulling a tram down the street with a toggle with mm. his teeth. He survived an elephant standing on him, which you know is not possible, but he did it. Uh, he he was not a, a large man. You know, you sort of think, oh, well, the world's strongest man will be sort of seven foot tall and all the rest <laughs> of it. But no, he was he was five foot four and built like a fire plug, as his youngest son, Bruce, says. Uh, and he had some extraordinary capacity to withstand pain, the likes of which just no one else could do. And uh, he thought he had cosmic powers or some supernatural uh, energy. And uh, it is not possible to explain what he could do by any normal measure or means. I mean, he just could do things no one else could do, even back then. Many of the things he did can't be repeated and probably never will be. And he basically said, well, to be great is to be misunderstood. And he, he was a very headstrong, determined man, obviously. So his diaries and his scrapbooks are an extraordinary archive of this exceptional man. And they were a a, a deep vein that I could mine with his son's permission for this book. And and his sister, so much as a juxtaposition of uh, tension uh, all the way through the, the history of Australia, the, the, these people. Thelma's story, different. Your, your research on her would have been so different. She's virtually, as you put it, a ghostly presence. Yeah, so I used to go up and back to the Northern Territory quite a bit for my work, first of all as a lawyer and then later as a broadcaster. I used to love going up to the Territory because it's just so full of characters. Everyone you talk to has got a great story. 
And there's quite a few of them in this book. And so I would record interviews with oral history interviews with pretty much anyone I could find who was a kind of territory old timer. And those interviews form the core of the the Thelma part. So there's there's multiple stories in this book to explain. There's Apollo's story. There's Thelma's story. There's her ex-husband Sid Hawke's story. There's a bit of my story. There's stories from the law, stories from the media and the ABC. There's the story retold of Frank Hardy's role in the Garinji walk-off, you know, at Wave Hill, Little Things from Little Things, Big Things Grow. Remember that song mm. and that iconic photo yeah. of Gough Whitlam pouring dirt into the hands of an Aboriginal stockman called Vincent Lingiari. And that's retold that story as I re-researched it and discovered it and visited Dagaragu Kalkarinji and kind of re-familiarised myself with what I thought I knew and it turned out I didn't. So there's all these multiple stories rolling through, but the, the oral history interviews I recorded over many, many years with people up in the Territory meant that I I felt I got to know Thelma, the publican, even though she was dead and I never met her. So, you know, I only met her after she died. Now, you, you, you wrote in your thought, I'm always interested in, in, in what motivates people and the psychology, John. To my parents, Solly and Eva, who taught that you finish what you start, uh, took me back to so many parts of my own life and my own parents and some wonderful stories and mentors I've had along the way. To what extent was that advice valuable and did you draw on it in writing Thelma and Apollo? Because writing a book and researching it is, is not a sprint. <laughs> no, it's a marathon. Um, this is a bit emotional for me, but both my parents died in the last 12 months while I was writing and finishing this book. And as I think I say in the back that um, parents' funerals are not the best thing when you're trying to finish a book. Mm. They're, they're, they're shocking. Um, they provoke all sorts of introspection and reconsidering of life. And how lucky am I? I'm 65 when my parents died. There are heaps of people who lose them so much earlier. But it did force me to rethink exactly you know, what it was all about. And it, it wasn't an existential crisis, um, and, but it was an emotional time. And I thought it was appropriate to pay tribute to them because um, they were, and I say this with great love and respect, but they were hypercritical of my career choices all through my adult life. Um, in, in sixth form at Melbourne High in 1974, my parents actually halfway through the year said, why are you bothering to finish? You're not doing any work. You're going to fail. You may as well quit now, get a job before the rush and forget about anything else. And it was brilliant because it motivated me to prove them wrong, which I did. And then, then when I was at uni, I, um, I did just enough study to not fail and get thrown out. So I would cram at the end of each year to get through the exams and always be astonished that actually this is really interesting once you start to read the things I was supposed to be reading all through the year. <laughs> and then when I graduated, I became a lawyer and I kind of discovered that the law was a really useful and powerful thing when it was used in the right way. And I did four years of commercial litigation, but I was also at the night times volunteering at the free legal centres at the Tenants' Union and the Fitzroy Legal Service. And that became my tribe. I suddenly found that I had more fun at night volunteering than I was having during the day, even though I was working incredibly long hours and hard and successfully too. So I kind of, my parents disapproved when I didn't study properly. They disapproved when I left commercial law. They disapproved that I went to work in legal aid. They disapproved when I left legal aid to go to the ABC. They thought it was career suicide. 
And it wasn't until I became quite established at the ABC that they finally looked at me differently and went, hmm, maybe you knew what you were doing after all. Who thought, whoever would have known? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm revealing a bit about it all because it's in context here and I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not getting revenge or anything like that. No, I'm just telling it how it was and it may resonate with lots of other people too. John, I'm absolutely certain it has. It's resonated with me and uh, the people that uh, I've spoken with about your book and, and even my own life. Um, you've done it really well. John, time's got away from us. I know you've got so many more things to do and uh, you're a person that uh, would be so easy to spend hours with chatting, but uh, we can't do that. And I just want to compliment you on the book and the contribution that that book has made, I think, to some very big, important conversations. And from a selfish angle, it's brought me both, both a lot of pleasure and uh, it's educated me. So thank you so much. I couldn't be happier to hear that. And thank you. That's a lovely review. And I hope people enjoy reading it as much as it sounds you have. I'm sure they will. That was John Fain, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale and so much more. Listeners, uh, published by Hardy Grant Books out there now. I couldn't recommend that book highly enough. We'll take a short break. Don't go away. You've been listening to the Viewpoints Podcast, hosted by Henry Grossek and produced by Rob Kelly. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rate us via Apple Podcasts. 